We're going to be in Romans chapter 7 today. Romans chapter 7. You got your Bible? Romans 7, beginning verse 1. Uh, just by way of introduction here, um, years ago in my, my previous ministry, uh, previous lifetime ago it seems like, um, uh, I was an evangelism and small groups pastor in, uh, uh, in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And one of my responsibilities in that job was, uh, the, was the new members class. And we would welcome all the new members, all the people who were brand new to the church into our home, and we would hear their stories and feed them and this kind of thing. And I remember one particular group of people that came through the new members class and I don't know if you've ever seen these kind of folks, but they had, they had the kind of scared rabbit expression as they came into church. You know, they just, they just acted, like, they acted like a shelter dog that somebody has abused. You know what I'm saying? Where they're just kind of just, you know, just gun shy about everything with reference to church. You know, they, they were just very cautious. They didn't seem like they really wanted to get to know people. It seemed like they wanted to actually go in a corner and hide somewhere. And, and you start to notice these things about people, and you want to find out what happened to you, right? Some, somewhere along the way, you had a bad experience with church. What happened? And digging into the conversation with them, I found out why. Because this whole group of people, there were about a dozen of them, we're all what I would call refugees from a rules-based, uh, religious, oppressive sect of Christianity. And they had been told all their lives that God's primary emotion toward them was disappointment. That as, that as God looked down from heaven at them, he went, well, you made it in, but only barely, right? Uh, and and, and that they had been told that where the Christian life, the whole thing, was all about keeping to the rules. And if you didn't keep to the rules, that God was going to smack you. And so somehow they had, um, they had been told that the whole thing was about keeping the commandments, not only the ones in the Bible, but also the ones that their denomination and that their pastor had imposed on them and developed for them in addition to the Bible. And all of them collectively were just pretty worn out and beat down from the whole experience. And when they got to our church, they were kind of, they kind of didn't know what to do. Right? Because they found the fresh air of grace there, but they also had lived under the law for so long that they weren't quite sure how to act. And the struggle was due, I think, to the fear that had been pounded into them that freedom from the law, which we have as Christians, would make people into lawless and immoral folks if they abandoned the law for living life by the Spirit. I remember getting a call from one of these ladies after they had actually officially joined the church. One of these, these uh, dear ladies called me up and asked if it was okay to take her kids to, are you ready? A PG movie. I'm serious. Okay. 
And what I had to tell her was, well, I don't know if that's okay for you or not. And I said, well, what do you mean? You're the pastor. You're supposed to tell us the rules. I'm serious. This is what they said. You're supposed to tell me the rules. And I said, well, look, the Bible doesn't address movies. Sorry. It's not in there. I checked, right? And uh, I said, but what you need to do is you need to pray about it and ask the Lord if it would be okay for you to go to something that the Scripture doesn't speak to. And if it doesn't violate your conscience, and if the Holy Spirit points you in a direction that this is okay, you can go. And if you have convictions that you shouldn't go, then don't go. And they're like, are you sure that's biblical? I'm like, I can show you where and so forth. We went into Romans 14 and all that. And we'll get to that. But, but they had lived under the law for so long that they were convinced that anybody who wasn't a law keeper like they were automatically had to be some sort of lawless, immoral person because they didn't know any different. And it took a long time to work that through with them. That you can live under the Spirit and not be immoral as a result. As it turned out, they went to the movies. They had a wonderful time. They got popcorn. It was great. (laughs) Okay, they came back. They're like, Pastor, that was the most fun. We had just a great time. I'm like, glad to hear it. Okay, but... What was exciting to me was that they began to understand that there's a different way of living as Christians than the old way of the written code. And that's what these verses that we're going to look at today are about. About living under the law versus living in the Spirit. Serving God by the Spirit. So uh, if you've got your Bible open, we want to read some of these verses. All right. Uh, this error about trying to live under the law is a kind of a long history in the church, um, but there is a better way, and Paul explains to it, it to us here in verses uh, one through six. Uh, first, he talks about he gives an illustration from marriage here in uh, verses one to three. Look at this with me. Or do you not know, brothers? For I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Now, Uh, Paul has just spent all of chapter 6 explaining why Christians must not ever utilize the superabundant provision of God's grace, which sets them free from sin's rule, as a reason to indulge in sin, right? In other words, just because we're saved by grace, that's not a license to sin. That's basically the point of chapter 6. That, that grace is not, a, is not a, we don't receive grace in order that we might sin, but in order that we might be free from sin. Not free to indulge in it without consequence. Uh, and we are freed by Christ from sin, in other words, not for sin. And we need to use our freedom for holiness and not for sin. 
and increasingly put sin to death in our lives. And he's also told us that God has declared us worthy of the sacrifice of his son, not because we are good, but because he is good. And as a result, he sent Christ to save us. And having been recipients of such massive grace from God, then obedience should naturally flow out of that. That, that if you are a recipient of grace and you really understand what God has done for you, that obedience flows from that out of, a, out of a sense of gratitude of all that God has done. Not out of obligation, but out of appreciation of what God has done. But the reality is, is that resistance to the triumph of God's grace in a believer's life is pretty strong. We all think and we all like the idea of rules and so what Paul is doing here in this passage is trying to answer the objections of his fellow Jewish background believers some of whom still think that freedom from obeying the law somehow has to open the door for sin wait a minute Paul you're telling us we don't have to keep the law anymore wait a minute hold on hold on that's got to lead to sin somehow I'm not sure how that happens Paul but it's got to lead to sin some way somehow because you can't just let people do uh, you know live by the spirit they've got to have some law in here to keep everybody on the straight and narrow and so what he's doing is doing is giving an illustration that's very simple tells us first of all verse 1 that the law only applies to living people. That makes sense, right? Dead people don't do anything, right? So they can't either obey the law or not obey the law. Dead people don't do anything, so the law can only apply to living people. And if, in verses 2 and 3, he gives us an example from the law about a married woman. A married woman who moves in with another man while she is married is an adulteress, right? makes sense. But that same woman, if her husband dies, and she marries another man, moves in with another guy, is not an adulteress, right? Why not? Because her former husband is dead. And so she is not an adulteress. She is a widow who has remarried, right? And everybody understands that a widow who remarries is legitimately remarried. Because the law only about adultery only applies if your husband or wife is still alive. If they're not still alive, if they are dead, then you're free to, to remarry and do what you want. Um, by the way, that's why we include that in our vows. Remember, 21 years ago this week, stood before, in front of God and all of my friends, and I said to this dear lady, until death parts us right? Until death parts us. In other words, you are stuck with me until the Lord takes me home, right? There have probably been times in my life where she has prayed earnestly for that, right? <laughs> um, you can ask her about that later. Um, sometimes the kids ask us, have you ever thought about getting divorced? Karen spoke right up and she said, uh, divorce? No. Murder? Yes. Right? <laughs> but uh, anyway... They probably won't send me away for life, right? I'm going to have some good years on the outside. But <laughs> um, in any case, um, we, when we get married, we vow till death, right? 
And the law binds us on that. And God's command binds us on that until death. Now there are, there are caveats on that and so forth, but in general terms, till death, right? When Matt and Elizabeth make their vows eight days from now, they're going to stand up before God and everybody and do the same thing to the death. Uh, and um, if this, but if death does part, then the surviving spouse is free to marry again. And Paul's going to clarify this illustration in the next three verses. But he's trying to win over those who are resistant to leaving the law by establishing the principle that it only applies, the law only applies to the living, and that death removes the law's hold over us. So hang on to that thought. And then read verses 4 to 6 here with me. Likewise, my brother, uh, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we, may, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Remember what the point of verse 1 to 3 was? The law applies only to the living. The law applies only to the living. So why doesn't the law apply to us as Christians? Because we died. That's what Paul says. When did we die? Well, go back to chapter 6. Paul spends a lot of time talking about how when, when we put our faith in Christ, when we put our faith in Christ, we are united with Christ in His body so that when He dies, guess what? So did we. Whatever happened to Jesus also happened to us. So we are united with Christ in His death. Therefore, when Christ died under the law for the things that we did, then we died with Jesus under the law. And so we are dead to the law. We don't have to keep it because we died and it doesn't apply. How about that, right? He's like, if the law only applies to the living, I've got good news. You're dead. How about that? Right? You are, you are dead with reference to the law because when Christ died, to whom you are united by faith, so did you and me. And, and all of that business about baptism and being baptized into Christ and being baptized into his death and raised with him to new life is all background to this verse 4 where he says that you died. And he... And, and when he died for our sins and was buried, our old selves died with him, along with our old sin natures. So in Christ's death, our sin was put to death. And in the same way that death ends a marriage, our death happened by our faith in Christ, and it ended, if you will, our marriage to the law. And so we aren't bound to that husband anymore. And we get a new one. We get a new one. We get Christ. Uh, God had a purpose in doing this. Look at the second half of the verse here, verse 4. That you may belong to another. In other words, you get a new spouse. Who do you get? 
him who, was, who has been raised from the dead, that is, Jesus. God united you to Christ so that in such a way that when he died, so did you in your old sin nature. So that you could be united to a new husband, to Jesus. And, second part, of, another part of the verse here, uh, that you, because you are bound to Christ for eternity in order that we might bear fruit for God. In other words, you had been producing fruit under the law, only it was all bad, right? You couldn't keep the law, and so you bore fruit, but it was all sinful. It was all wicked. It all led to your condemnation. The wages of sin is death. And so you needed to die to that marriage, if you will, so that you could get a new husband, Jesus, who would enable you to produce fruit for God. Because it is only through faith in Christ that we produce fruit for God that counts. And God God did all this, in other words, so that our the result of our faith in Jesus would be a life of obedient holiness. That we might be fruitful people. That we might produce something with our lives that honors God. Rather than dishonors Him. And verse 5 is really interesting. Paul's Jewish opponents are all making the argument. In fact, if you read the book of Acts, what you see there is is Paul has a group of Jewish opponents that follow him basically from town to town. Wherever he goes on a missionary journey, these people go right behind him sowing discord in all the churches that he plants. And one of the things that they're doing is arguing that freedom from the law makes sin more likely and more abundant in a person's life. But in verse 5, what Paul is doing is turning that argument upside down. And he's saying, you want the abundance of sin? Well, it's the people who are under the law who are really in bondage to sin. When he talks about living in the flesh here in verse 5, what he's speaking about is who we were before we knew Jesus. Because all you have is just your own self and your own effort and your own energy to depend on. That's life in the flesh. Whatever energy you can supply on your own to obey God... um, isn't sufficient because without the spirit you fail and so he's saying look the law did not prevent you from sinning in fact what it did was the opposite what the giving of the law did and he's going to explain this more uh, in more detail elsewhere in chapter 7 the law didn't prevent you from sinning what it does in the giving of it is create within you new appetites to do what the law forbids right like for example if I go home and I bake a bunch of chocolate chip cookies and I've got them all laid out on the counter right and I say to my children who are old, all old enough to know better, do not eat any cookies. Right? What do they want to do? They want to have a cookie, right? With a big glass of milk, right? In fact, I don't want one cookie, I want about four, right? Um, 
Why is that? Because somebody told me I couldn't have something that I want. Right? And what the law does, essentially, is to stimulate our old sin nature, like the presence of those cookies, and create within us a desire to do what the law forbids. You know, it's just like, it's just like uh, you know, when I was in college, you know, we, I went to Christian college, they had a thing as part of their covenant, the way that we all live together in Christian community against dancing, right? Now, I am the whitest person in the world, okay? I do not dance. Well, I do, but not well, right? <laughs> and, and I never wanted to dance. But when I was in college, man, I wanted to get my groove on, right? Why? Because they had a rule that said you weren't supposed to dance. That's dumb, right? But that's who we are as people. That when somebody makes a rule against something, we want to violate it. Or at least get as close to violating it as we can without actually getting bit by it, right? So we start doing these things like, so how many miles over the speed limit can I drive without getting a ticket? Right? Because the law says, yeah, it's about five, uh, right? Uh, the law says 35 miles an hour, but if I go 37, nobody's going to the effort to pull me over, right? You know, at least, it, yeah, well, maybe in Chile. I don't know about that. I've never been stopped. But, uh, but, but we want to violate it simply because there's a rule against doing it. I used to live in Texas. The speed limit in places was 75 miles an hour, which is plenty fast to go anywhere you want to go. Right? In fact, in certain vehicles that we've owned, it would start to shake right around that speed, right? <laughs> but I want to go 80, right? Why? Because the law says I can only go 75. It's crazy the way that we are. But as soon as, the, as soon as the law says don't do this, we, it's the very thing that we want to do. And so Paul says, what Paul's argument is in verse 5 is this, that what the law does actually is the opposite of what it's intended to do, which is prevent sin. What it does instead is stimulate sin. And and arouse in us desires to do things that we haven't thought to do yet. Simply because there's a rule against doing it. And when we engage in those desires, what we produce is not fruit from God, fruit for God as, as, as God intends, but only fruit for death. Because those are the wages that we're earning Remember verse six, chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death. And he says, our passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to do what? To bear fruit for death. But now, we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. And here's what he's saying. That it's only now that we have been released from sin by dying to both sin and the law 
through the death of Christ that we are now truly free to obey God. Because we had to get released from captivity to, the, to sin and the law in order to be truly free in our obedience. It's the people of God, in other words, those who have the Spirit, those who obey God because they have believed the gospel that actually produce fruit for God. It's not those who, are, who have the law and are bound to it. It's Christ and his death and resurrection that transforms. It's like this. You know, when my kids were little, you know, we gave them commands, right? And we would say, you know, do this, do not do that, right? They had a bedtime. We would tell them when to brush their teeth and, you know, when to take a shower and when to, t- you know, all these things. We just, you know, it's a very regulated thing, right? And, and in Scripture, what, the, what Paul tells us in the book of Galatians, as an example, is that the law treated God's old covenant people like children. It told them to do this and not to do that. But now we are in a new relationship with God, just as my kids, as they're getting older, are in a new relationship with their mother and I. Where now, having given them principles to follow all this time, now we expect them to a great degree to do what is right, not out of obedience to a command, but out of a heart transformation that's making them into adults that can function, right? So they don't, we don't tell them when to bathe, we expect them to bathe, right? Because it's in their heart to be clean, rather than funky, right? Um, and we, we expect obedience out of a heart transformation, right? And in the same way, God is expecting obedience because a heart transformation has taken place in us. And we, are no, we no longer obey God based on the, the written code of do this and don't do that. We obey because the Spirit within us changes our desires so that we want to obey. A heart transformation has taken place. And as a result of that, we are free from the law, but we are free not to sin, but to obey. And to do what is right out of a, out of a changed heart, rather than outward conformity to a written standard. Make sense? All right. Uh, so here's just a few questions here for reflection as we close out our sermon this morning. Number one, have you died with Christ? I'm not going to assume that, even though all of us here at Chili Bible, we would all probably say, yes, I'm a Christian. Uh, Of course, I believe in Jesus, etc. But there's a question here that is real. Have you died with Christ? Do you, in fact, possess authentic faith in Jesus? Are you a person who, in fact, has put their, tr- their personal trust in Jesus Christ and received salvation so that you, when he died, you died, and your old sin nature was put to death, and the Spirit came into your life to transform you? Has that actually happened? 
If it hasn't, I would love to sit down and talk with you, and we'll stay as long as you need to stay to talk to you about the reality of that that can be yours. That you can experience death with Christ to your old life and new life as Christ has been raised, so you are raised to new life as well. I'd love to explain to you how that works. So, have you actually yourself died with Christ? And second question, for those of us who are Christians, having begun by grace, are you now trying to live by the law? So, big temptation happens a lot. People who receive salvation by grace, and then they want as a result, after that, some kind of list of rules to keep. And they think God loves me when I'm good, and He hates me when I'm not, and I never seem to like I can live up to what God wants me to do. And it's not about that. It's about living a transformed life in the power of the Holy Spirit who changes you from the inside out as you submit to Him. And again, if you're confused on how that works, I'd love to sit down with you and explain it and help you. Because there is a great and glorious freedom that comes from obeying God, not out of conformity to rules, but out of a desire for obedience that begins from within you. Filled by the Holy Spirit. Amen? So, God already loves you. You don't obey hoping God will love you but because you already have it. Amen? So let's pray, and then we're going to stand and we're going to sing. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your marvelous salvation. That in Christ we have uh, died with Christ, and we have been raised to new life as we put our trust in Him. Our old self has been crucified with Christ, and we no longer live, but now Christ is alive in us. In the life we live in the body, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave Himself for us. Uh, Father, I pray that we might live not by, under the old way of the written code of rule-keeping and box-checking, but out of a transformed heart and life that changes us from the inside out by Your Holy Spirit. And Father, we pray according to your Holy Spirit's power and in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Now, uh, we're, as you know, we have, been, we have been closing our services for the last several months, and we'll do this uh, until I'm finished with Romans sometime next, sometime next year, uh, singing some of the great hymns of the faith and closing out each one of them. Uh, uh, each of our services, because this is the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation uh, this year. And the Protestant Reformation was a time when the gospel was recovered, and a person's individual, unmediated relationship to God without the aid of their priest uh, was, was re-emphasized as the Scripture teaches it. And uh, we, we began to proclaim again the reality that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, as the Scriptures alone testify to us. And if there is a hymn that is kind of the anthem of the Reformation, it's this one. 
uh, a mighty fortress is our God, right? Um, uh, the, you know, it's written by Martin Luther who started the Reformation, this reform movement, uh, by nailing his 95 theses, 95 complaints he had against the church, <laughs> right? Uh, 95 theses, he nailed them to the Wittenberg Castle Church door and touched off a movement that he did not expect. Uh, this song is written about 10 years into the Reformation at a time when Luther is fighting depression and serious illness. He's been on the run. His life is, is constantly under threat. There are all kinds of Catholic princes who want him dead and his head on a stick. And he writes this hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Uh, the idea is based on the Psalms, the idea that God is like a giant castle that we can run into and be protected from all of our enemies. And so the first line is a bit of synonymous parallelism. It says, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Uh, a bulwark is another name for a fortification, okay? A defensive fortification that protects you. Uh, so. If you've ever wondered what a bulwark is, and that's what it is, all right? It's the idea that God is, is a mighty, impenetrable fortress that protects us and watches over us and saves us from all our enemies. So if you'd stand and sting, a mighty fortress is our God.